Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we are winging it. I mean, winging it as in that's the theme of the show. It isn't like we don't know what's coming next. But for many of the people we'll meet over the next hour, more often than not, that's exactly the case. We'll hear from a longtime D.C.-based teacher of improvisation. Right, and as, as I've said before, if I start talking in a crazy, silly Scottish accent, what do you know about me immediately? And we'll hang out with a musician who's all about experimentation and play. We'll also take a more literal look at our Winging It theme with stories about creatures and critters that take to the skies. I think birders have this reputation for being these sort of nerdy people. But I don't think that that's really true. But before we get to all that, we'll visit a place in Loudoun County, Virginia. Are we like in the bowels of the place or is this where you guys walk normally? Okay. Where hundreds of people wing it every day. So most of the lab space where we do experimental work is upstairs. Sometimes in more ways than one. Okay, so this is where we do these sort of indoor flight experiments on how dragonflies catch prey, basically. And this guy is one of those people. His name is Anthony Leonardo. And the bespectacled, ponytailed young scientist has led us to the window of the dragonfly flight arena deep within the main building of the Janelia Farm Research Campus. Because this is radio, can you kind of describe what it is we're looking at here? So the room is um, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet in size. So it's like a big cube. And at the top of the room, we have a huge number of very bright lights. So the room is sort of lit to look like noon on a summer day. Leonardo has furthered the summer day theme by keeping the room at a steady 82 degrees, installing artificial grass, and providing a heaping helping of fruit flies for his dragonflies to eat. He's also covered the walls with blown-up photographs of the trees, grass, and flowers you'll find all over Janelia Farms' 689 acres. So, you know, now it has uh, enough appearance of an outdoor sort of realistic environment that dragonflies think this is a good place for me to hang out and forage. Leonardo and his team actually catch the dragonflies on the Janelia campus, which the Howard Hughes Medical Institute built in 2006, so scientists could set up shop in a collaborative and flexible environment. It's internally funded, so you don't apply for any grants. There's no teaching, so all you have to do is your work. And if you head a particular lab, as Anthony Leonardo does, you're pretty much given free reign to study whatever you fancy for a renewable period of five years. A topic that's long fascinated Leonardo is this idea of prey capture. Prey capture is essentially a problem of predicting where a moving target's going to be in the future. And so this is um, both a challenging problem, but also a deeply interesting one, because prediction is sort of like a fundamentally sort of interesting thing about what people and other animals do. You're trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And while you're doing that, there is so much going on and so much scientists don't yet understand. It's like this highly choreographed dance of senses sensing, neurons firing, muscles responding. So this is sort of analogous to like a football player catching a a ball. And so the objective of the football player is really to watch that motion and then alter its own sort of body movement to sort of reach it at some future time coordinate. Not a bad metaphor, but when you're talking about motion, there's a major difference between footballs and fruit flies. 
the latter of which, by the way, Leonardo gets from some of his fruit fly scientist buddies upstairs. Before you go on, I just want to say some fruit flies have been sort of uh, zigging and zagging around us as we've been talking, and they fly like crazy. I mean, like, they, they're not going in one direction like that football player running after a ball. They are all over the place. more complicated uh, than the football player running after the ball. That's right. But the, but the more complicated it gets, the harder it is, even for a dragonfly. And that's saying a lot, since Leonardo considers dragonflies to be the most sophisticated hunting and flying machines in nature. Outdoors, they catch maybe 95% of what they go after, which is sort of phenomenal. I mean, something like a lion does like 15%. But here's the thing. Compared with a lion or that football player, dragonflies are tiny. A half a gram would be a big dragonfly. But not so tiny that they can't carry a miniature wireless system that records and transmits their neural activity as they zoom around. Leonardo calls it a telemetry backpack. The first two generations of this thing, we also called a backpack, and we attached on the other side of the body, and this caused great confusion for everybody because they're like, it's a front pack. So now it literally is a backpack, though, right? Right. I mean, it doesn't have padded, adjustable straps and a pocket for your cell phone, but it does have this little computer chip with electrodes that stick into the back of an anesthetized dragonfly. And once the animal starts flying and foraging, the backpack detects and sends out signals from what Leonardo calls the steering neurons. The animal's going to fly, catch things, and we're going to monitor the signals coming out of these neurons while the animal's doing it. And they're going to shoot videos of the animal at a whopping 1,000 frames per second to get a more macroscopic view of what's going on. Like, how does the body move through the air towards the prey? Like, what does the flight pattern look like? Just as you might look at the flight pattern of your United flight going from Los Angeles to New York. Once Leonardo goes through all the videos and analyzes all the signals from the backpack, his next job is to look at all that data and say, Well, what the heck does it mean? And we have lots of, uh, you know, ideas and models on how to do that, but at least you can kind of measure all of the relevant information, and then you have the greatest hope, probably, of actually understanding mechanistically how are the pieces combined. I mean, otherwise you're trying to assemble a 10,000-piece puzzle with 100 pieces. Anthony Leonardo doesn't have all 10,000 pieces yet, but he's well on his way. And he'll soon find out if he'll be able to get even closer, since his Janelia Farm contract goes up for renewal in July 2014. To see photographs of Anthony Leonardo's dragonfly flight arena and to watch a close-up slow-motion video of a dragonfly catching a fruit fly, visit our website, metroconnection.org. So if you've watched any television over the past, I don't know, several decades, you've no doubt come across the ubiquitous medical drama. What is it? Explosion at a power substation. Multiple burn and blast victims three minutes out. How many? At least eight. The doctors on these shows often seem to spend their days and their nights winging it through crisis after crisis. And actually, that's not too far from what happens in real life at the University of Maryland's Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. The center sees more than 8,000 severely injured patients each year. And when it opened its doors more than 50 years ago, it was pretty much the first of its kind. Nowadays, it's thought to be among the best trauma centers in the nation. Jacob Fenston brings us this look behind the scenes. It's a beautiful Friday afternoon, and the sun is shining on the roof of the Shock Trauma Center in downtown Baltimore. Right now, I'm waiting for Trooper 1 to show up. Trauma technician Tony Cristiani. Trooper 1 is one of Maryland's seven medevac helicopters. It's a fall coming in, yeah, from over on the eastern shore. 
guy was on a ladder and he fell off a ladder about 10 feet or 6 feet. Cristiani rushes out as Trooper 1 touches down. Seconds later, the patient is in the trauma unit downstairs, where about a dozen staff members in pink scrubs swarm around him. He fell, then passed out. He fell, hit the ground, passed out. When things are going well, it's truly like an orchestrated ballet. Anesthesiologist John Blanco has worked here for 22 years. Everyone knows what everyone else is doing. They know where they are. They know what's just happened. They know what's coming next. There's no repetition. Nothing's missed. Every patient who rolls through the elevator doors here comes in with grave injuries. So the decisions that doctors and nurses make in an instant can easily mean life or death. But there's not really time to get hung up on that when another patient's already on the way. Usually Friday afternoon around 4 o'clock, 4.30, it's like somebody flipped a switch and things get busy, and they get real busy real fast. Especially when the weather's nice. People hit the road in cars and motorcycles, or they're out on the streets causing trouble. This particular afternoon, things do get very busy. The phone starts ringing, and it doesn't stop. Okay, no problem. Trooper 6, 13 and 17, industrial, category 8, priority 1, and if they're injured by a flailing hose. Okay, thank you, sir. All right, bye. There's going to be two patients on Trooper 1. Gunshot wound to the uh, left buttocks region uh, going to the left groin. I can't quite tell if it made it out of the groin or not. Excuse me, pardon. You know, we've just admitted 15 people. It's kind of busy. It's not the busiest we've ever been, but it's kind of busy. Dr. Tom Scalia is the physician-in-chief in charge of the shock trauma center. Here, he says, doctors don't have the luxury of time to order a bunch of tests, then sit back and think. We have to make decisions, sometimes based not on the, the greatest information, so you go with a lot of clinical feel, a lot of gut sense. Patients keep coming in, and Scalia makes the rounds with a gaggle of residents. Got the chart rack? Oh, chart rack. Grab the chart rack. Meanwhile, as the beds here fill up, staff swiftly shuffle patients to other floors to make room in the trauma unit. Right behind them, Elise Mitchell is among the women in blue scrubs cleaning up for the next patient. They're coming in, they're coming in, they're coming in. And we got to be fans right along with them. Everyone here seems to thrive on this fast pace. Dr. Scalia compares it favorably to a roller coaster. Nurse Ellen Plummer has another analogy. Your adrenaline's going all the time, pretty much, and you're almost like a racehorse waiting to go out of the gate. She says it's something you get used to, 12-hour shifts with constant adrenaline. But for patients, whatever event brought them here was unexpected and often life-changing. These patients and the families, they don't wake up today knowing that they're going to get in a car crash and they're going to get injured, and, and they have no preparation for that. That's the bad part of the job, she says, having to break the news to a family or finding a child's note to Santa in the pocket of a woman who just died after a car crash. We can't save everybody, and that's, that's the worst part of this job, totally the worst part of this job. Even though they can't save everyone, the doctors and nurses at Shock Trauma do save most. Of the dozens of patients who arrive here in ambulances or helicopters each day, 96% survive their injuries. I'm Jacob Fenston. Time for a break, but when we get back, 
a singer-songwriter who's all about riffing on the auto harp and theremin, and the man who's taught hundreds and hundreds of Washingtonians to be hilarious on the fly. Improv comedy is collaborative comedy made up completely on the spot uh, based on audience suggestions. That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, our theme is winging it. And in just a bit, we'll wing it with a comedian who's trained hundreds of people in the art of improv. We'll also make some music on the fly with singer-songwriter Angela Sheik. First, though, we're going to look at some big changes in the D.C. public schools in the realm of special education. The Office of the State Superintendent of Education says nearly 13,000 students in the district are in special ed programs. And for years, many of them have been educated in private schools on the city's dime. But this school year, that changed. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza is here to explain those changes and how teachers and families say students are faring under the new system. Hi, Kavitha. Hi, Rebecca. All right. So this year, DCPS started bringing special ed students back into the city's public schools. But but why? What was the thinking behind this change? Well, DCPS's new philosophy is better services, more kids closer to home. And so last year, nearly 1,600 students were placed in private schools. This year, it's approximately 1,200. And DCPS wants to reduce that number even more. Nathaniel Beers, he's the head of special education services for DCPS, and says there are instances where private placements are best. But he also says students are generally better served when they're close to their communities. The reality is is that kids with disabilities are going to live in the communities in which they currently live. And we do no one a service, not them, not their families, not the community, if we're shipping them out of the community and they're not visible. All right, but but private schools can be really expensive. So I'm wondering about the financial aspect of all this. How much of this decision is being driven by, by money? Money is definitely a part of it. In the past, DCPS has spent as much as $150 million per year on these private placements and approximately 60 to $90 million more on the students' transportation. If you look at the breakdown per student, and of course the amount varies widely, it costs approximately $36,000 to educate a child with disabilities in D.C. public schools and twice that in a private setting. Oh, that's quite a difference. Um, but beyond the issue of money... There's the question of what actually happens in the classroom once these students move into their new schools. Do you know what teachers are saying about the larger numbers of special ed students in their classrooms? Well, I spoke with Nathan Saunders. He's head of the Washington Teachers Union. And he says teachers are happy that these students are returning to DCPS. But he says educators are also already under so much pressure to teach. When you add in children who have very specific needs, it's challenging. So, for example, you may have a student who acts out and disrupts the entire class. Or you may have one with, say, autism. And as a teacher, you've never been trained to deal with his or her needs. Saunders says the success is unequal. In some places, it's gone successful. In other places, it's been horrible. Teachers have really done a yeoman's job in terms of trying to 
deal with the influx of students being returned to the system while the resources have been slightly lacking. The D.C. public schools and D.C. government must use the savings on the special education student or else what you will see the district government fall right back into the lawsuits that got them into this predicament in the very beginning and the cycle will simply go over again. Kavitha, something we haven't yet addressed here um, are the parents of these students. How do they feel about having their kids move out of private school? Well, I think it depends on what the child's needs are. I've heard from parents who are willing to try this out and see how this goes because they like having their child go to their neighborhood school. But there are parents, such as Greg Masucci, he went to the city council recently to speak out because he doesn't feel his child's needs are being met at all. When your special needs child is placed in a classroom whose teacher not only lacked a special ed certification or any prior special education experience, when that completely unqualified teacher then proceeds to miss 25% of the school year, thereby finally forcing DCPS to combine two autism classes into one that is overcrowded, incredibly loud, chaotic, and seriously detrimental to the development of the autistic children like my son, you think to yourself, surely I have a case for private school placement. And how has DCPS responded to Masucci's claims? Well, school officials won't comment on individual cases, but Nathaniel Beers with DCPS says the school system is making progress, and they are now not just talking about compliance and lawsuits, but about quality. He says they've spent millions of dollars on teacher training and hiring dedicated aides for these students. Next year, they'll add approximately 30 new classrooms for children with special needs. I think it's really important, Rebecca, to point out that this population is very, very vulnerable. There are huge gaps in their academic achievement, and historically, expectations have been super low. Beer says that that's changing, and now they're focusing on setting higher goals for each of these students and measuring whether they're making progress. Well, Kavitha Cardoza, thank you so much for walking us through this big change with uh, D.C. Public Schools. You're welcome, Rebecca. If you're a teacher or a parent in the D.C. public schools, we'd like to hear your thoughts on this shifting approach. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Facebook. All right, so our theme this week is winging it. And the woman we'll meet next is all about winging it through music. We'll find out more on On the Coast. In which Brian Russo brings us up to speed on the latest from coastal Delaware and the eastern shore of Maryland. Today, he introduces us to singer-songwriter Angela Sheik, who uses unusual instruments like the theremin, auto harp, and loop pedal to create her sound. Sheik recently visited our studios out in Ocean City to teach Brian how to make musical loops on the fly. I really am going for sounds that you don't hear very often, so something that's a little bit unique. That's the music I gravitate towards. Yeah. So, What's your background as far as instruments go? I mean, you know, you say that, that you just kind of picked up the auto harp, you know, what's, what are you rooted in? Where was your instruction? Um, I started playing my grandmother's piano. Um, I really wanted to play the Star Wars theme song, so <laughs> I think that was my, I guess, my first step. But I was in the band program, the public school band program, and I played flute. That was my start. When did you find the loop pedal that you've now become not only very well known for, but also you've become a champion of? Tell me the first time that you found one of these loop pedals and, and 
then you saw the endless possibilities of what it could do for your sound. Well, I I had a different loop pedal for a long time, and I was at an electronic music festival. And thankfully, some guy came up to me. He He was maybe in his 60s, and he said, you should check this pedal out. I think it would really open up the possibilities for you. I'm so grateful for that, man. I don't know who it was, but um, he was so right. I mean, it really... I, I got my Boss RC50 at the time. This The pedal I have now wasn't out. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was just such a songwriting tool for me. It really uh, it kept me from playing a crazy amount of chords. You know, mm-hmm. the, the loop pedal gives you a structure yeah. that I think changed my songwriting. I want to play a track off the record and, and this track on, on the record isn't necessarily, it's a, it's a cover song, you know, simply put. This is was just nominated uh, by Independent Music Awards. This was nominated for Best Cover Song. This is a, a cover of uh, Can't Help Falling in Love. So we're going to listen to that and we're going to, I'm going to follow you back into the, the isolation booth where we're going to learn how to create yes. your sound. Isolation booth here at the Park Recording Studio in Ocean City. I'm here with Angela Sheik. We are going to create a loop. Um, so <laughs> basically, for people who are just hearing, you know, the the, the wonderments of of looping, um, tell me what we're looking at, what we're using, um, and 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 what I guess the the first step in creating a loop. Okay, we are using the uh, Queen of Boss pedals. This is the Boss RC300, um, which is basically three pedals smashed together with some effects, um, which is going to allow us to take some loops in and out. So okay. we can record something and we can take it out. Okay, you know, so let's, let's let's start with uh, when, when you're creating a loop, what do you like to start with first? Usually rhythm. Rhythm is key, and um, then you can add harmonies and take them out, and the rhythm will stay. I'll give you an eight-beat rhythm, mm-hmm. okay, and then we'll see if anything then I'll hand the mic to you and just say go right (laughs) (laughs) okay you're on ready three four Zip, 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 zip,
All right, so <laughs> we just created a loop. It, it's interesting, too, because you... Uh, you never know where it's going to go. You never know where it's going to go. <laughs> I, I find it really interesting with, with your stuff is that as more and more people find who you are as an artist and they're like, wow, Angela Sheik is, is really a force to be reckoned with and, <laughs> and really somebody that I dig as an artist... As you get bigger, do you worry that they're they're going to have to try and place you in some sort of genre? You know, you look at artists that, that you're influenced by, Imogen Heap or yeah. Regina Spector. It's hard to kind of place them in, in, in a box. That's already a problem. It's already a problem explaining to somebody in a way that would invite them to mm-hmm. come, make them want to come to a, a show. What genre is the question that mm-hmm. they usually ask? And, and I don't have an answer for that. But I really love the people, especially the women icons, that um, they are... The genre. Yeah. Imogen Heap is her own genre. Regina Spector is her own genre. She made anti-folk, in my mind. So, that, yeah, that's what I aspire yeah. to be. That was singer-songwriter Angela Sheik speaking with WAMU's Brian Russo. Sheik has shows coming up in Cheltenham, Maryland, and Fairfax, Virginia. And you can read all about them on our website, metroconnection.org. In the morning we'll sing from the treetops and no Time will whistle from the shade in the evening on the old porch swing. We'll drink our lemonade, me and my darling, my chickadee. For the guy we'll hear about next, winging it is pretty much his bread and butter. His name is Sean Westfall, and in 2003, he started an improv comedy school at the D.C. Improv on Connecticut Avenue. Westfall began with 14 students. Ten years later, he's taught hundreds of people to be funny on the fly, including producer Phil Harrell, who brings us Westfall's story. Um, Tonight's class is going to focus on character in improv. In a small room across from the improv's famous main stage, Sean Westfall skitters before a cluster of 13 students. His bright red sneakers, green jeans, and boundless energy give him the look of a highly caffeinated superhero. Right, and as, as I've said before, if I start talking in a crazy, silly Scottish accent, what do you know about me immediately? Yes! Right, right. Westfall grew up in Indiana, joined the Air Force. Yeah, they let that guy in the Air Force. And he traveled the world before finally landing here in D.C. He found work as an improv actor almost from the start, but that wasn't enough. I had had a stint in graduate school where I taught freshman comp, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed teaching a lot. And I thought, well, what the heck? I think I'm a pretty good teacher, and I have seven or eight years of improv under my belt. Why don't I teach a class? And better still, why don't I approach some space that doesn't have a class? That space was the D.C. Improv, managed by Allison Jaffe. And I was 23, 24, and up to trying anything and everything for the club and was enthusiastic. And that was 10 years ago, and we've been going strong ever since. Uh, yes, sir, you are? I'm, uh, I'm Troy Woodruff. <laughs> I've worked my whole life, putting yeah. food on the table. I've got right. three ex-common-law wives. Troy, you have three? How did that happen? Well, you know, I don't like to commit, and I don't like to commit a lot and often. <laughs> wow. Wow. So what is improv anyway? I mean, it's not the same as stand-up. Improv comedy is collaborative comedy made up completely on the spot, uh, based on audience suggestions. And contrary to what you might think, the last thing students should try to do is be funny. 
the minute they start trying to be funny, trying to be clever, is the minute that their scene will go immediately off the rails, primarily because they're up in their heads thinking about the ways in which they're going to sort of show off their comedic acumen. Well, what they're not doing is paying attention to what's happening in the scene. Sean Westfall is trying to teach the people of Washington, D.C. not to think. In a city filled with think tanks, that's a tall order. The students in this class, for the most part, don't have an interest in becoming professional comedians. But they all mention how these classes enrich their personal lives and their work lives. They're applying improv lessons like listen to what's happening around you and say yes to whatever life throws at you and build upon that. It's almost like they've come to study at the feet of Sean Westfall, self-help guru. Even if you don't take these principles out into the rest of your life, there is something therapeutic about getting together with people who only a few short weeks ago were strangers, tearing these barriers down, laughing freely, laughing with them, laughing at them when they do something completely outrageous on stage. There is something to that. West Falls classes have turned out a few full-time comedians, though. One of my former students is currently in Chicago and has done some mainstay stuff on Second City. Her name is Katie Klein, and she had a breakthrough in one of West Falls classes. It involved a warm-up game where you stand in the middle of a circle of improvisers and sing. Klein was terrified. And I remember a specific moment when he just locked eyes with me and yelled at me, Are you allowed to say bad words on this show? He told me your fear. And I just got over it and started doing the exercise. And I still use that expression when I'm nervous backstage as just kind of this get over yourself. Who are you to be so nervous? Yeah, yeah. That's we often think that we can't do things. We, we look at the cliff and we go, I'm taking a huge, tremendous leap and it might just kill me. Right. And the attitude that was hammered into me and which I've hammered into Katie and other students is take the leap. As Ray Bradbury says, leap off the cliff, build your wings on the way down. You are a self-help guru. (laughs) That's what you are. I'm not licensed, and that's probably a good thing. (laughs) Thank you all very much. How you guys doing tonight? Sean Westfall is celebrating 10 years of helping people, hundreds of them at this point, take that first leap off the cliff. I'm Phil Harrell. Ladies and gentlemen, the D.C. Improv Comedy School cast! Up next, why reptiles have wound up at a lab designed for birds of a feather. I love birds. I didn't think I'd ever be working with Burmese pythons. And a brand new remix of Chekhov's classic, The Seagull. It is a different kind of adaptation. It's a response to, it's a reimagining, it's whatever you want to call it. It's its own thing. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are winging it. Earlier in the show, we met a bunch of people who are winging it by acting on the fly and making snap decisions, like a longtime teacher of improv and a doctor working in a shock trauma unit. 
But now we'll take the whole wing thing a bit more literally. Starting with a winged creature, you'll find living, breeding, and feeding on every single continent in the world. The seagull. Or as it'll be known in this next story. Stupid f***ing bird. Okay, so we're not trying to be glib here. We're not trying to be shocking. What you just heard playwright and director Aaron Posner say is actually the title of a world premiere play opening this month at Woolly Mammoth Theatre Company in Northwest D.C. It's being marketed as sort of adapted from the seagull. I think when you say adapted, usually it means, oh, I'm trying to be true to the work. I am putting that work on stage in a theatrical form, and this is not that. So it's something else. It is a response to, it's a reimagining, it's whatever you want to call it. It's its own thing. And this thing, this reimagining of Anton Chekhov's 1895 play about unfulfilled desires for love, success, and artistic genius, for Aaron Posner, it's been nearly a lifetime in the making. Seagull, particularly for young theater artists, it's like the play. It's about theater and it's about art and I'm going to change the world and all of that. So it was one of my favorite plays. And then as I grew older, it became a less favorite play. And then one that I found pissed me off. And so I was in conversations with some other folks in the theater, and we were talking about Siegel and talking about why one loves and hates it. And I literally said, well, you know, I should do my own version of Siegel. I should call it Stupid F***ing Bird. And people laughed, and I went to the bathroom, and in the bathroom I thought, I should do my own adaptation of the Siegel, and I should call it Stupid F***ing Bird. And um, maybe a month or so later I started writing. That was a few years ago. And since then, Posner's continued writing and writing and rewriting and rewriting. And as of my most recent interview with the play's director, Willie Mammoth Artistic Director Howard Chowitz. I think the official draft number we're on is like uh, 8.4 or something like that. It's common for a playwright to burn through multiple drafts before a play gets on its feet, often before it even starts rehearsals. But in the case of this play... SFB, as we call it. It's been entirely different. As Shawitz explains, with most plays at most American regional theaters... There's usually a long process with the playwright and a semi-long process with the director and a not-very-long process with the designers and then a very short three- to four-week process with the actors. But with SFB, Woolley's been able to bring all those people together over an entire year. And touch base with the play at different phases in its development. Not just, oh, here's the script, and now we're doing a quick production to put it on the stage. The Secret is a $4 million fundraising campaign to develop and produce 25 new plays in 10 years by providing more technical resources, larger casts, extra readings and workshops, and longer rehearsal periods. The campaign is called Free the Beast. And so the metaphor is that the way we've worked on new plays on the past is a little bit locked in a cage. I think American directors and American theaters in general are among the best in the world at doing a really good job in a short period of time. (laughs) But we also do spend less time working on a play than most other countries do, who have deeper government support and companies of artists who've been sustained over many years through that support. And so I think that sometimes we rob ourselves of the tools that we could develop if you gave yourself a little bit more time to experiment. And that's precisely what Free the Beast has done for SFB. It's given it more time. And cast member Kimberly Gilbert, who's done a ton of plays around town, says she's felt the difference. I think I've done about seven world premieres. And ultimately what happens is when you work on a regular rehearsal schedule – you feel that you're ready to open when you close. 
because you don't have any time to let things marinate. But with SFB, she says, the cast started marinating last April during a week-long workshop in Lake George, New York. And they've done a few more workshops since then. So at the play's first official reading this April, Gilbert says, instead of feeling the typical jitters, usually I'm like sweaty and, you know, heart racing. She felt right at home. It was just as if it was another step in the process. And she admits that this process has kind of spoiled her. Spoiled, but also ruined in a way. Like, it's ruined me. (laughs) Kimberly was saying that she feels like she's been ruined. She's like, next time I do a world premiere, I'm going to want to have a workshop a year in advance and then a couple more and then get to the first reading. She used the word ruined. This process was like such a luxury. You know, if I can ruin actors, um, ruin theater artists of any kind, you know, that makes my life worthwhile. (laughs) Playwright Aaron Posner is, of course, joking because, yeah, he's totally with Kimberly Gilbert on this one. We've had a great luxury of time. And yet, he says, we could use more time. For now, though, a little more than a week remains before SFB is up and running. And though the play isn't exactly an adaptation of Chekhov, word has it the first act set includes a big picture of the playwright more or less overlooking the proceedings. So love him or hate him, he'll most definitely be there in spirit. Previews for SFB start May 27th. To get more information on the show and to see photographs of some members of the cast, visit our website, metroconnection.org. The humble seagull is just one kind of bird you'll find at the place we'll visit next, the Feather Identification Lab at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. The lab has spent the past four decades studying bird strikes. That is, what happens when birds and planes collide. Basically, the scientists at the lab help military and civilian airports determine which birds are striking aircraft. But lately, the lab's scientists have been coming down from the sky and into the literal bowels of one of our non-feathered friends, the Burmese python. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has the story. Carla Dove holds a small package underneath the fluorescent lights inside the Smithsonian's feather identification lab. And what we have inside is prey remains from the Burmese python. So... Fortunately, now these are pre-cleaned. Back in the day when we first started working on this, they sent us the whole frozen intestinal tract. And that that could be a little smelly. These are better. (laughs) The serendipitously named Dove is a forensic ornithologist and manages the Smithsonian's Division of Birds, and thus the Feather ID Lab. While there is an actual laboratory here, the ID lab is dominated by a massive accumulation of bird specimens housed in floor-to-ceiling wooden cases on the museum's sixth floor. Let's open a case. So here we go. This section of the museum is closed to the public, but in many ways is the most impressive collection in the building. We have somewhere around 620,000 specimens right here on the sixth floor of this building. Uh, Most of the public do not even realize that we're here. But when the military or the National Transportation Safety Board is investigating a bird strike, this lab is really the only place that can do the work of identifying exactly what species collided with the aircraft. All Dove and her team need is a fraction of a feather, although sometimes they get more than that, and often it's messy, 
so often that decades ago, the prep lab here coined a word for what's left of a bird after a mid-air collision. It's a word that's practically become a technical term. We call that snarge. That's ick. That's a bird ick. Okay. Snarge. S-N-A-R-G-E. I think it means like snot and garbage. (laughs) So Dove and her team are not squeamish. But sifting through the digestive tracts of giant snakes, she says that took some getting used to. You know, I didn't think I would ever be, I love birds, I didn't think I'd ever be working with Burmese pythons. The opportunity first arose about five years ago, when researchers at Everglades National Park in Florida wanted to find out if the Burmese python, an invasive species running amok in Florida swamps, was eating native birds. The answer has been a resounding yes. An early study encompassing about 80 pythons found 25 different species of birds in their stomachs. This snake is, is opportunistic. It's eating everything in its path. If you'd expect anyone to be enthusiastic about washing a feather in a beaker full of soap and water, it's an ornithologist named Dove, and she doesn't disappoint. She's giddy as the feather's coloring becomes clearer. So this will be, this is exciting. This tells me that we may have a chance at this one. The feathers are about three inches long, brown on the tips and white near the shaft or rachis of the feather. Of the eight specimens that arrived in the package from Florida, they're the best preserved. Dove uses an air compressor to dry them off. See how nice they look? And look at the color of brown now. You can sense that Dove already has a good idea of what bird ended up as this particular python's meal. But she has to check the molecular structure of the barbules at the base of the feather to be sure. It gives her a chance to gush about her new microscope. So this is like the CSI uh, forensic equipment that we, we just love. And this is new and it's got great optics. Those optics lead Dove to an order of birds known as gruiforms and a family that contains water birds such as cranes. Dove walks back to the collection room and opens the gruiform case, sliding out a tray of specimens known as limpkins. So here we have this nice little feather with a white diamond shape and a dark tip that matches up perfectly with these feathers on the belly of the limpkin. That's a beautiful match. Florida is the only place limpkins can be found in the U.S., and they are on the state's list of protected species. Dove says the pythons pose a real threat to the North American limpkin population. This is not the first limpkin we found in the, in the prairie remains of this species, so... Um, and, and we also know they're eating their eggs. Pythons first appeared in the Everglades in the late 70s. They're popular exotic pets in Florida and may have been released by their owners or escaped from backyard enclosures. Some estimates put the current Florida population in the tens of thousands. And Dove says the amount of devastation the snake is inflicting on native species makes it hard for her to see it as anything other than the villain of the story. I love snakes and all animals, but... I have to say, I have become, um, uh, you know, I have, my dislike for this snake has really intensified over the years. Dove says she hopes her research will push policymakers to dedicate more resources to protecting native birds before their remains end up in her lab. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Want to learn more about the Feather ID Lab and see exactly what a limpkin looks like? You are in luck. We've got all sorts of information and photos on our website, metroconnection.org.
So the folks at the Smithsonian have made careers out of identifying birds of all types. The guy we'll meet next has made more of a hobby out of it, but uh, it's a pretty hardcore hobby. Every day, just after dawn, Wallace Cornack leaves his home in Georgetown and heads to Rock Creek Park to document migrant birds. He's been taking these daily trips ever since he retired from his nuclear engineering job more than a decade ago. On a recent Saturday morning, Emily Berman tagged along with the unofficial president of D.C.'s birding community and brings us this story. The list-making begins around 6.30 in the morning. At the bridge, I heard great crested flycatcher, wood thrush, oven bird. This is Cornack's friend, Bill Butler. He arrived early today, and in the 10 minutes he's been waiting, there's been a lot of bird activity to report. Titmouse, chickadee. While Cornack takes down these first few sightings, Butler explains that Wallace Cornack is the most hardcore birder in Washington, D.C. He's been out here nearly every day, rain or shine, for the past 13 years, ever since the day he retired. And so we do this basically with Wallace being the center point, and the rest of us radiate out from him and tell him what it is we see or hear. We walk down Ross Road and into an open clearing called the Equitation Field. Then we begin to listen. The other thing about this birding is you have to have exceedingly great patience. It's, it's going to be quiet for quite a long while. So we wait. And after a few minutes, figures emerge in the distance. They're wearing rain boots, hats, and large binoculars. The birders are arriving. Uh, this is Chip Chipley. Chipley lives in Fairfax, but comes here during the migration season, he says, because even though it's in the middle of the city, you just can't beat Rock Creek Park. This park is better than anything in Virginia. You can see more different species here in a shorter amount of time. Cornack walks around, saying hello to everyone and making sure he has their names. In his list, he likes to give credit to the birders who first spotted each bird. I appreciate a good birder. I want to know who they are they know me, I know them. There's no published meeting time for the group. It grows mainly through word of mouth. During the week, there are just a handful of birders. But on the weekends, especially during the spring and fall, there can be quite a flock. This can be quite a scene. Sometimes there'll be 50 people here. Lisa Shannon comes here every week. She got into birding in her 30s and likes joining Cornac to learn from more advanced birders. Though, she jokes, a lifetime of birding can make someone so accurate, it's ridiculous. I mean, these people who started when they were 10 or something are amazing. They say, oh, that chip note up there is obviously a female scarlet tanager that just came here from Mexico. I can smell the tacos on her breath. (laughs) Taco breath aside, the warblers everyone's looking for really are making their way up from Mexico. They're here in D.C. for just three or four weeks as they head north toward Canada. But after an hour of looking and very few warblers, Cornac migrates to his second location, the maintenance yard. The group walks down a path to a place that looks like it should be off-limits. There are heaps of sand and dirt, old fences and bulldozers. Wallace Cornack spots someone in the distance. It's Matthew Saleo, a grad student at the University of Maryland. Matt, how is, how is everything? Matt's carrying a camera the size of a NASA telescope. He's been up here taking photos of birds all morning and has seen a lot. Two black-throated greens... One yellow warbler, maybe ten yellow rumps. 
Kornak adds these to his list, which, as soon as he gets home, he types up and sends to an online database called eBird. It's run by Cornell University. And because birders use it all over the world to look at migration patterns, Kornak's pretty careful about which observations make the cut. Sometimes I report it, sometimes I don't, depending on the credibility of the birder, the experience of the birder. I uh, use my judgment. But... Uh, most of these people right here are very experienced birds. Paul Pisano joins Cornac on the weekends and also happens to be the peer reviewer for the eBird entries from D.C. For him to take the time every day to be out here and capture what's being seen and then the time to put it into the, into the system, I, mean, I think that's, that's really an incredible quality. The group is now leaning against a fence, chatting and pointing their binoculars up into the trees for any final identifications. Today was not a big day, Kornak says. But still, there are dozens of birds on the list. There are disappointing days, a lot of those, but there are very exciting days, and that's what brings you out every time. It's the unexpected uh, appearing before your eyes. And that might happen today, or it might happen tomorrow, maybe sometime next week. But no matter when it happens, Wallace Kornak will be there to jot it down. I'm Emily Berman. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, and Brian Russo, along with producer Phil Harrell. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our brand new intern is Eva Harder. Welcome aboard, Eva. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll search for the root of all happiness. We'll delve into the latest research on what brings us bliss. We'll cook the cuisine of the world's happiest nation in our Eating in the Embassy series. And we'll meet people who find great joy making the bells chime at D.C.'s National Cathedral. I'm just a ringer. I'm a dangling. I'm a bell person. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. <laughs>